Hello, dear listeners. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Adrian Vermeule. Before we get to that episode, I want to apologize that there are some lags in the recording. We had some internet connection issues at various times throughout the episode. Professor Vermeule made no accusation, so I speak for myself, but I believe a clique of legal realists at Yale Law School sabotaged our internet connection to prevent the interview. They were largely unsuccessful, and we're getting the episode out. I am conducting an investigation and will report back in the future. In the meantime, here's the episode. Professor Adrian Vermeule is the Ralph S. Tyler, Jr. Professor of Constitutional Law at Harvard Law School. He serves on the Council of the Administrative Conference of the United States. He was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2012. He has written many books and articles, including Common Good Constitutionalism, Laws Abnegation from Law's Empire to the Administrative State, that's a title and a subtitle, and The Constitution of Risk. He joined me to talk about classical and administrative law. Hello, Professor. Thanks for joining us. Hi, how are you? Nice to be here. Great. This podcast will be about administrative law. However, I think it'd be useful for the audience to start with some constitutional law and talk about constitutional law and the classical uh, legal framework, uh, just to get those concepts on the table before we proceed to administrative law. So I'm hoping you can first just very quickly give an overview of the classical understanding of the legislative and executive power, and then we can uh, treat the judicial power separately. Okay. Well, the classical view of constitutionalism is ends-oriented or teleological, rather than immediately jumping to institutional form. So one of the striking developments in um, liberal constitutional theory, and this is especially marked since World War II, is that people are obsessed with uh, kind of institutional technologies. Um, They're obsessed with uh, what exactly are the Uh, is the distribution of authority between institutions. Uh, Classical law doesn't start from that premise. It starts from the premise that the fundamental temporal end of government is orientation to the common good or general welfare. And that's, of course, laid out right at the beginning of our own constitution. And then um, the classical the perspective on law says that um, there are various ways to uh, carry out a determinatio or institutional specification so long as this fundamental end is retained. So that the classical law has always been um, more agnostic about institutional forms than is liberal democratic constitutionalism. So classical lawyers will say things like, uh, and this is absolutely entry-level stuff for the classical lawyer, they'll say things like, um, a well-ordered polity can be a, uh, a kind of democracy, they would call it politeia, um, it can be uh, an aristocracy, it can be a monarchy, or best of all for many classical lawyers is a mixed form of government, um, which uh, contains elements of all all three of the baseline forms of government. If the polity is not well ordered, that is, if government is not pursuing the common good or 
general welfare. And we have degenerate forms of those possible regimes. So we have uh, um, the degenerate form of monarchy is the tyranny of one man, the degenerate form of aristocracy is oligarchy, and the degenerate form of politeia, ruled by the many, is actually democracy, um, used in a somewhat different sense than today. So um, that's the baseline setup. And legislation as an institutional technology is actually, I mean, it's around in a certain form uh, right from the beginning, but it doesn't become dominant until the 19th century and especially 20th century. So we need a bit of context to understand understand even the, the, the questions that we're posing when we talk about legislative and executive power. That said, I mean, the simple conception for the classical lawyer of the relationship between legislative, executive, and adjudicative power um, is that the legislature is the body that makes uh general rules for central cases, for ordinary cases. And then we have uh, the application of those rules to particulars, both uh, in the executive branch and in the judiciary. And those general rules have to be applied to particulars under the horizon of the fundamental aim of all law, which is that it's an ordination of reason to the common good. So that within classical law, both um, executive bodies and judicial bodies will sometimes have to adjust general rules to specific circumstances. And um, this is often called uh, epikeia or aequitas. And the idea is that, um, and this is a locution American lawyers used throughout the founding era in the 19th century, and it sounds strange to modern positivists, the locution is that a case might uh, fall within the letter of the statute, but not within the statute itself. That's because the statute is taken to be a real thing that's uh, rationally ordained for the common good and that its text might imperfectly reflect that fundamental end. So we have famous problems like, um, I assume much of our audience may know the case Riggs versus Palmer, where there are general uh, rules for making wills. And the question is, um, how do those rules apply to a case where the heir has murdered uh, the testator, his father, and so forth? Um, and this is the point at which aequitas uh, or epikeia enters the picture. But I stress that in most ordinary cases, none of that is relevant. And in most ordinary cases, classical judges respect the text as an ordination of reason to the common good. Um, it's just that they don't take the bare uh, words of the text as definitional of law. They take uh, the words of the text as an indicator of law. That's a good transition point for me to talk about judiciaries and the judicial role. So you're saying in most cases, when you're judging in a classical legal system, it's going to look something like what we call textualism today. The philosophy behind it, if that's the right word for it, is is different though. 
Is that correct? Yes, op- yes, exactly. So operationally, the classical judge will um, almost all the time look like an ordinary textualist judge because um, uh, most laws almost all the time work pretty straightforwardly for the central cases to which they were addressed. American lawyers today are somewhat obsessed with uh, the idea of conflict of laws or hierarchy of laws. What do you do if uh, equity is in conflict with the seeming apparent meaning of a positive text? That's not the way classical lawyers thought about law. They thought in terms um, mostly of harmonization of laws. So the fundamental structuring assumption is that uh, because law is an ordinance of reason to the common good, we should be very reluctant to assume that it's in direct conflict with general background principles of law um, and of natural equity. Um, So the work is mostly of uh, harmonization of reading statutes to make the uh, positive civil law the natural law, the use gentium or law of nations, um, and indeed divine law uh, to be kind of harmonized together in a coherent way. That sounds a lot to me like the canon of constitutional avoidance. The judicial power is going to be reluctant to throw a wrench into the works when other branches of government have made this determination that something is in accord with the common good. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And, and, one has to understand the rich context of this in in Western law. It goes back as far as the eye can see. So it goes back to the the digest, which says that in all things, but especially in law, one uh, interprets according to equity rather than uh, the strict letter of the law. There's a constitution um, in the codex. Uh, that is the collection of um, enactments of uh, Roman emperors as to law um, that says the same thing, that law should be interpreted according to uh, equity. Now, of course, there are other texts in the Corpus Juris that may or may not be in tension with those, and a lot of the work of the glossators and then post-glossators is harmonizing all that. But the fundamental structuring presumption of the classical law runs like a golden thread throughout, I think, the history of Western law. So we have people like Baldus de Ubaldus saying that um, the emperor is always presumed to act in accordance with natural and divine law. So this is a kind of nine normative fiction that is used to harmonize, to civilize, to uh, ameliorate um, and to flesh out uh, positive law. Now that you've started talking about some sources, I, I wonder how we're supposed to use those sources as lawyers when we're doing that harmonizing. I, I don't take you to have ever said that you know if I have an ERISA case, for example, that I am going to go in and start uh, quoting Thomas Aquinas in my in my twelve b six motion. The point of it is that. The point of it is that you have a philosophical approach to the law that that is different than than your mainstream positivist textualist approach right now. That's exactly right. I mean, uh, exactly. So in 
you know, 99% of cases that come before actual judges, there's there's no need to do anything highfalutin. Um, when you have the ERISA case, you interpret it according to the ordinary meaning of words. And that's because unless your legislature is really uh, dysfunctional in a tyrannical way, um, the ordinary meaning of words will, in all the central cases, track you know, a rational ordination for the public welfare. So none of this is intended to say that uh, judges or lawyers um, immediately start in invoking equitas all over the place. The point is that two, there are two ways of putting the point. One is that there occasionally arise hard cases where uh, positive law is ambiguous, indeterminate, um, it seems excessively general relative to the uh, rational ends of law or poses some other problem. And then uh, this gives space for harmonization of the law with enduring background principles. The other way of understanding it may be conceptually more fundamental is that the very meaning of law is always... Um, read against the horizon of normative understandings of what the legislative office is. And the legislative office is an office that is constituted for the public welfare. So we should very much hesitate to read the meaning of laws as though they are as though they are pursuing some other um, damaging end. Does that make any sense? That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's, that's, uh, we've covered some good ground there. And I think we can transition to uh, classical law and administrative law. Okay. And we're back. I'm hoping you can start talking about the administrative state and classical law. We've talked a little bit about legislative powers, executive powers, and judicial powers. How does, how does administrative law in this classical legal framework fit in? So um, I think there are, a bunch of converging ways to understand classical justifications for the administrative state. First, let me clear away one um, mistaken view that one often hears nowadays has become curiously prominent, um, and it's just wrong. This view holds that the American administrative state is a recent creation or that the administrative state generally is a recent creation. Sometimes people say silly things like, well, Woodrow Wilson was the founder of the American administrative state. Um, all, all that is wrong. So work by uh, people like Jerry Mishaw and Julius Mortensen, uh, drawing on uh, work by historians of American constitutional development, have shown that the administrative state goes right back to the beginning, uh, and that the very first Congress um, enacted broad delegations to the president and the executive branch for various purposes. And indeed, there's a body of work in um, uh, sort of legal history and the development of legal institutions that shows that the administrative state goes much farther back than that. Um, so it really has its origins in the Roman state, which then influences um, the uh, Catholic Church 
that um, brings the administrative state to a high pitch of uh, sophistication, both institutionally and jurisprudentially. And then the Catholic Church in turn influences states of the kind of late Middle Ages and early modern period. So we have this famous treatment of uh, Frederick II by Ernst Kantorovich, who says that um, Frederick II's uh, Liber Augustalis or Constitutions of Melfi is the birth certificate of the administrative state. Uh, and uh, that's a law code that Frederick II promulgated for his Sicilian domains in 1231. Where does Frederick II get this kind of uh, institutional technology? Well, he gets it from the Catholic Church. So I'm always a bit amused when I hear American Catholic legal scholars saying the administrative state is a you know creation of World War One or something. Um, that's simply simply not the case. So that's a historical point I wanted to clear away. Uh, but I did want to give some uh, classical justifications for the administrative state as well. But um, I don't want to go on too long. I think that's that's good because people might think of the administrative state as this very top down thing. It's this thing that's imposed on people. And I think you have a have a different understanding of where the administrative state comes from in the classical understanding. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So let me say let me say a few things. The simplest justification for the administrative state in classical legal theory is a kind of natural necessity. That is, the lawmaker can't specify all the detail of the law due to constraints of time and information. And I, I wanted to read you this quote that eerily anticipates the theory of delegation to the executive in modern administrative law. And the quote comes from Francisco Suarez, a great Jesuit uh, theologian uh, with legal interests, uh, from his uh, treatise uh, De Legibus Octeo Legislatore in 1612. And here's what Suarez says about delegation. He says, there may be a delegation of power to frame a law decreeing whether or not it is just, useful, or necessary, and in what terms it shall be incorporated but the power of the delegate does not extend to the ability to endow the law with binding force that's given by the delegating instrument. Um, and he continues, in this sense, it is manifest that the power in question can be delegated, although in point of fact, this constitutes a delegation, not of jurisdiction, simply of a form of ministry that requires knowledge and skill. Indeed, he says, it would hardly be possible otherwise for laws to be made by princes, since the latter could not accomplish unaided all that is necessary to the process of legislation. I mean, that's an absolutely standard justification for delegation that appears in all sorts of U.S. Supreme Court cases. It appears in Justice Scalia's famous defense of the Chevron Doctrine, um, and it's, it's as old as the hills. Another way of looking at the administrative state is the classical concept of determinatio, which is the concre concretization of the law at successive levels. So in the classical conception, the lawmaker has really two roles that are fused. One is the maker of law, but also the interpreter of higher law. So the uh, French jurist Portales uh, introduced in the French Civil Code in 1801 
said that human lawmakers are the respectful interpreters of background principles of natural equity. But the way they interpret natural equity is through determinatio, this concept, which is concretization of a general principle to um, a more specific form. So we might have a general principle that there should be statutes of limitations in some form, there should be repose for people who are under um, risk being sued. But obviously the institutional and legal details of that require all sorts of further specification and that's the function of the lawmaker. Then what the administrative state does is it carries out the process of determinatio to ever more specific levels. So uh, the lawmaker enacts a general statute, as I said, and then we have executive agents who um, make it more and more concrete through rulemaking or adjudication. And this is what my colleagues Jack Goldsmith and John Manning called the completion power. And this is absolutely the classical conception of one dimension of executive action, which is that it uh, gives more and more concrete um, specification to general uh, legislative rules that are necessarily, by the nature of things, not fully determinate. And Chevron is just agencies adding concretization, and maybe later we can talk about how deference uh, naturally falls out of that picture. A third point I wanted to make about this, and, and maybe this is closer to your interests, is that there is in the classical law a fundamental normative justification for the administrative state apart from natural necessity. And the fundamental normative justification for the administrative state is that a sovereign people, the initially the Roman people, but um, all sorts of sovereign peoples and other later polities, may uh, empower a uh, an uh, executive and uh, a bureaucracy precisely to preserve their sovereignty and to protect them from the depredations of the few. Uh, let me just give two moments in this, one very old and one very recent in historical perspective. A very old one is uh, Pomponius's summary uh, at the beginning of the digest of the development of Roman legal institutions. And Pomponius says, look, um, the Roman people under pressure of circumstances um, realized first that it was hard for the entire citizenry to assemble and direct democracy. So the necessity of the case imposed upon the Senate trusteeship of the Commonwealth. This is like setting up a, a Congress because you can't vote on everything directly. And then at a subsequent stage, it turned out that um, the senatorial elites, according to Pomponius, were um, unable to govern all the, uh, all the provinces honestly. Um, and in this second best non-ideal circumstance, um, the Roman people effected a transition of law to the executive, uh, in their case to a kind of quasi-elected, quasi-selected um, um, imperial office. And uh, you can see the point here is that people are empowering the executive 
as a way of defending themselves against against a bad government by um, by political and legal elites. And this is, ironically, very, very much uh, James Landis's fundamental justification uh, for the administrative state in the New Deal. So uh, Landis says um, that the problem in our day isn't senatorial elites, it's quasi-private actors like corporations that, according to Landis, are exercising a kind of sovereignty and that in order to protect uh, popular sovereignty, the uh, American people have, over time, uh, through their representative institutions, created uh, and empowered an executive branch presidency uh, and uh, agencies that protect them from uh, this kind of um, collection of uh, quasi-sovereigns. So this is an ancient theme and a modern theme in the classical law, and it's a fundamental justification for the administrative state. And it has the feature that the administrative state on this view is not founded in expertise, although that is um, separately uh, a question we can discuss. But what it's founded in is precisely the desire to translate or preserve popular sovereignty in a changing non-ideal world. So it's a mistake on this view to see the administrative state as a hostile opponent of popular sovereignty. It's a creation of popular sovereignty. And indeed, um, the administrative state does not fall out of the sky or fall from the pen of Woodrow Wilson. Um, it comes from decades and indeed centuries of enactments by Congress that have deliberately uh, created agencies and empowered the president in all sorts of ways in order to achieve aims that uh, Congress as representative of the people uh, felt were beneficial to the public interest. So uh, the administrative state can be seen as a means of popular self-defense in a certain way. And the final point I wanted to make about the connection between the modern administrative state and the classical law is a very interesting observation by uh, a guy named Herbert Felix Jolowitz, who was the Regius Professor of Civil Law at uh, Oxford in the 1950s, a great Roman lawyer. And he made an observation about modern programs in the administrative state, things like social insurance, sorts of um, public regarding creations of programs that are supposed to, to help people live better. And he said that these kinds of programs were more reminiscent of the classical approach to law than was the 19th or late 19th century conception of law simply as uh, negative prohibitions that create rules of the road. So Jolowitz said that the classical view of law was that it's fundamentally positive, that government creates positive programs um, for the general welfare, and that we have kind of, in some way, rediscovered that in the, in the administrative state. So I think we have there maybe four converging, classically themed justifications. That makes a lot of sense. I think a skeptic might be a little bit worried and say, okay, you have these justifications for the administrative state, 
But how do we, if, if law is an ordinance of reason, how do we make sure that this thing, this big thing that we've created is uh, is using reason? Is there anything that the classical law says about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, let me start out with some points that should be obvious, um, is that we have to avoid nirvana fallacies. That is, we, we don't want to compare an ideal case of a non-administrative state with a abusive, dysfunctional administrative state. That's not a coherent comparison. Um, no human uh, form of government is going to be perfect. Um, but in many cases, we are choosing a kind of lesser evil. And uh, Pomponius's argument for the delegation of the power of Roman uh, the Roman people to the executive very much takes that form is that the alternative is worse um, the alternative of dishonest government by the optimates. That's point one. The point two, however, is that, um, and I think this uh, returns a bit to some earlier themes that I mentioned is the classical law um, picture of law treats law as under a kind of benign normative presumption um, or assumption that it can be uh, interpreted uh, in public regarding ways and harmonized with enduring background principles of natural right and natural equity. So that um, if it's true that uh, the emperor um, is always presumed um, to honor natural and divine law, so, too, uh, any executive officer in their action is presumed to uh, honor uh, enduring background principles of, of equity, um, and that this is the ordinary way that statutes, regulations, agency action gets interpreted in the administrative state. Um, and indeed, as a matter of black letter administrative law on American administrative law, the Chevron doctrine kind of gives way or more accurately is harmonized with um, traditional uh, canons of construction. Um, so, for example, um, uh, agency delegations to agencies are presumed not to um, violate the Constitution unless um, it's indisputably clear otherwise or they're presumed um not to authorize uh, retroactive rulemaking unless it's clear otherwise, and so forth and so on. So the classical law brings to bear its ordinary tools of harmonization uh, and the assumption that different principles and levels of law are coherent um, in order to try to help ensure that the administrative state is ordered to the common good. That's great, and that's helpful. And I think with that background, we can transition to focusing more so on uh, the United States. I'm just going to try to provide a little background for our non-lawyer or international listeners on how administrative law works in the United States. This is basically trying to condense an entire law school course into about 30 seconds, but I'm going to try it anyway. Uh, in the United States, basically what happens is Congress passes uh, laws with relatively general wording. That wording will empower or command 
an agency to do something. Uh, I think a famous example is in Whitman, where the Clean Air Act required the EPA administrator to promulgate air standards, uh, among other things that are requisite to protect the public health. The Supreme Court has said that these broad authorizations do not violate Article One. That's where Congress is. The vesting clause in Article One, so long as they provide an intelligible principle and Basically, the court never strikes down laws based on the intelligible principle test. The matter doesn't really end there, though, because there are a lot of judicially crafted doctrines and the Administrative Procedure Act, which govern agency action. So, for example, agencies will engage in rulemaking or adjudication, and Article Three courts will review those actions based on different standards. These standards are usually fairly deferential, and they are oftentimes more oriented towards the decision-making process that the agency undertook rather than the substance uh, or the policy outcome that the agency got to. One type of deference to know about is Chevron deference, which basically says that courts will defer to agency interpretations of statutes so long as those interpretations are reasonable. There are other uh, similar types of deferences, like our deference, which is about interpretations of agency rules. Uh, courts say that Chevron deference is a two-step process, uh, but they are just trying to make their jobs look harder. And there's really just one step. Uh, sorry, that last part was a joke. If you didn't get it, uh, just disregard. Anyway, with that background in mind, is it? We, we've touched on this a little bit. Is it fair to say that the United States has a popular sovereignty uh, basis uh, for its administrative state? Yes, absolutely. So, um, not to refer to my own work, um, but uh, I have a earlier book, uh, Laws of Negation, that um, takes on the claim that the administrative state is uh, an abdication of legislative power and an abdication of popular sovereignty. Um, and the argument there is that um, the administrative state um, is fashioned deliberately over time by our representative lawmaking institutions. So um, it is a sustained, deliberate, reasoned creation uh, by Congress in response to various popular um, demands, popular outcries for uh, protection against uh, social, economic, and legal evils. Um, and it's best seen as an expression or a means of uh, popular sovereignty rather than an abdication of popular sovereignty. And um, in, this, in this way, when uh, Congress delegates to the president and to agencies um, the power to uh, this completion power to fill in the details or interstices um, of uh, general norms through rulemaking and adjudication, we have a, a concretization of, a, of a, 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 a purpose that ultimately stems um, through their representative institutions from the American people. So one of the myths I want to combat is this idea that the administrative state is a kind of alien occupying power. It's rarely put in such lurid terms, but that's very much the background music of many 
critiques of the administrative state. Um, quite the contrary, it's an expression of the uh, needs, desires, hopes, and and will of the American people over time. One way I think to um, recalibrate one's intuitions, for example, is to go back and look at uh, the 19th century origins of uh, some of our leading administrative agencies. So food regulation does not come about uh, because of an abdication of legislative power or because of um, some sort of uh, 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 rent-seeking by um, nefarious forces. It comes about because... Um, to a surprising degree, people are often dying in awful ways from unregulated food. Um, there's a amusing little strain of literature about uh, breakfast cereals and their toxicity before uh, before national food regulation is initiated. So these things um, come about. Uh, often because there's a genuine widespread social economic problem to which um, the the people in some broad sense uh, want a response and from which they want protection. I think one of the concerns, at least on the American right, is that this administrative state becomes uh, a fourth branch of government that the president cannot control. So I think there's a there's a good point actually here, um, and this is where I uh, find some common ground with um, these critics. Although I think that they they often mix up two different things. The two different things that they mix up are delegation to the executive, uh, sort of um, generally speaking, on the one hand, and the role of um, independent agencies, on the other hand. So sometimes um, the administrative state is used in some broad way to refer to um, the executive branch generally. Sometimes it's used more narrowly um, to refer to independent agencies not fully subject to presidential control. Um, and sometimes people skip back and forth between those two senses, uh, even in the very same article or the same conversation. Um, and here, I think that uh, the uh, right view of the executive state, if you like generally, is the one set out in the Myers decision um, in the 1920s, that um, all executive branch officers, when they exercise power, are exercising um, the president's power. They are like, uh, they are as though contained within the president's office. Uh, and therefore, I uh, uh, applaud and approve of the re recent course of Supreme Court decisions that have sharply restricted the authority of independent agencies relative to the president and sharply expanded the removability of subordinate executive agents by the president. Um, but that uh, debate gets mixed up with the larger non-delegation debate. Uh, and sometimes critics of independent agencies um, think that um, opposing all delegation 
is um, part and parcel of their view. Well, it's 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 not. So delegation to the president is the chief executive, the, the head of the administrative state um, is uh, very much in accordance with uh, popular sovereignty. And it's a separate question whether there should be executive branch officers who are independent of the president, if that makes any sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it is important clarification. Um, I think with with that, we can start talking about some nuts and bolts of administrative law. How How is rulemaking and adjudication in administrative agencies sort of attuned to these classical principles of administrative law? A few things to say here. Um, one is that statutes all, all the time will give... Uh, administrative agencies, an analog of classical imperium, that is, in its developed form, imperium just means the power to uh, make legal rules or take legal decisions in the public interest. And uh, uh, delegating statutes in the administrative state constantly, routinely, give agencies the authority to regulate in the public interest. But as Justice Scalia observed uh, in a uh, famous concurring opinion in a case called uh, Webster versus Doe, the flip side of that is that statutes are always interpreted to uh, require agencies to act in the public interest rather than in some other interest. So it is, uh, according to Scalia, and I think he's very much channeling the classical view here, it's always implicit in statutes that an agency may not take public action to benefit um, uh, some private constituent or to uh, give a job to someone's nephew or um, for corrupt purposes and so forth and so on. So that's all one point. Another point is that... Um, uh, the structure of rulemaking uh, builds in the kind of popular consultation that is very much a feature of the classical theory of mixed government. So if you go back and look at Aquinas, for example, at one point he praises mixed government and says that what it allows is taking into account popular views in a, a process of the formulation of law and the notice and comment process for rulemaking is calculated to do exactly that. Now, we can have a separate conversation about how well it works and so forth, but that's the, that's the theory of the institutional structure. The third point, of course, is that all administrative rulemaking is subject, or approximately all, is um, uh, subject to uh, arbitrary and capricious review. And the whole point of arbitrary and capricious review um, is to ensure that agencies act in reasoned ways. So in my most recent book on common good constitutionalism, I say that arbitrary and capricious review is in, indeed a kind of model for the, the classical approach to judicial review generally. The point of it is not so much uh, to police agency rulemaking um, according to the uh, kind of meaning of the relevant text. It's to ensure that the agency is acting for the right ends through reasoned ways. Um, so it's a kind of 
uh, means in review that um, sees uh, reasoned um, decision making as as the cons the fundamental constraint on means agencies may use. So um, in all these ways, both with respect to the uh, definition of ends that agencies can pursue with respect to the processes, consultative processes by which they pursue them. Uh, and finally, with respect to the fundamental requirement of reasoned decision-making, agency rulemaking process has a lot of surprisingly uh, classical features. Um, and indeed, I think, as I argued in a piece called The Original Scalia, indeed, I think that's why Justice Scalia, who through most of his career was a great champion of the administrative state, this is why he uh, he uh, liked um, uh, agency rulemaking or thought it was uh, generally in the public interest. That makes a lot of sense. And and it pairs nicely with with Chevron and, and the other related uh, deference doctrines that courts have developed. We've talked a little bit about Chevron already, but you see Chevron basically as part and parcel with this classical legal tradition where you are where the court is basically saying another actor is acting in the common good. So therefore, uh, as long as that looks reasonable there, then they get deference. Would that be accurate? Yeah. So I, th I think the right way to understand Chevron from a classical legal perspective is, as, as I said, as determinatio, it's just as a legislature um, engages in determinatio of, uh, background principles of uh, the common good and natural equity. So too, then an agency comes along and engages in determinatio of the legislature's general um, general instruction. So it uh, uh, completes the legislative purpose and adapts it to particular subcases that are, uh, may present. Um, different features. And a lot of rulemaking and adjudication is agencies saying, well, the legislature's given us general instruction like regulate chemicals that pose an unreasonable risk. Um, what we have to do is identify subclasses of chemicals that do and other classes of chemicals that don't and so forth. Um, and then adjudication applies uh, the agency's rules uh, even more concretely to particular cases. And all this happens, as, as you said, under this horizon of reasonableness. So the classical law doesn't see lawmaking as um, uh, a kind of antagonistic process. It sees it as a process of successive specification um, in uh, uh, in the name of the common good. Um, so successive adding of content by various actors at different levels. So it sees it as fundamentally in some way cooperative um, rather than uh, uh, prohibitive. And that's that's the very much the mindset behind Chevron. I think deference falls naturally out of that. So if Chevron is a form of determinatio, well, the whole thing theory of determinatio is that um, when you have a general uh, either background principle or a general instruction from a legislature, there may be multiple ways to carry out that instruction that are all reasoned. Um, so Aquinas's example is we give someone a commission to build a, let's say, a hospital for our city. 
Um, the purpose of the commission constrains the ways they can do that. There are some ways to build a hospital that will be simply dysfunctional, but there may be more than one way to build a hospital that, that will be functional. Um, and we defer uh, to the uh, specification of the general instruction in the sense that um, if the um, agent is carrying out their task of completion of specification in good faith, um, we give them leeway to judge primary judgments on the scene about what is the best way to do that in the circumstances. And, and that's that's the simple intuition behind Chevron, that if Congress says regulate chemicals that pose an unreasonable risk, we're then faced with uh, two choices. One is the judges, quote unquote, de novo, can try to decide for themselves what counts as an unreasonable risk. But that seems distinctly unpromising. Or, um, and this is by and large the approach uh, modern American administrative law is taken, the judges can say to the agency, you make a primary judgment about what counts as unreasonable risk. We will review that judgment for, um, for a kind of good faith and a kind of rationality to make sure that you have stayed within the bounds of the mission Congress has given you. But we will not ourselves try to make a primary judgment about what unreasonable risk of injury means, especially with respect to a complicated subject. So I don't think it, uh, Chevron rests on some fancy complicated intuition. It's just a way of respecting the leeway that um, primary agents are given to uh, flesh out uh, congressional instructions. That's, that's, that's good. And that makes a lot of sense. A skeptic might say, you know, we sort of fought this twofold revolution first against the Stuarts and then against uh, King George. Aren't we don't we have a, a strict separation of powers? Uh, maybe not total separation of powers. I, I think everyone recognizes that, for example, there's the veto power, but we have a we have a strict separation of powers. That's the that's what our constitution is supposed to be. And aren't we sort of blending powers here? OK, first, as a matter of background, um, uh, about the kind of fundamental aims of the American Revolution. Uh, second, about um, originalism in the classical legal tradition. And third, about the separation of powers in, in particular. Um, it's funny that you, uh, I mean, it's great, um, but uh, it's also interesting to me that you mentioned the Stuarts because um, returning to Landis, his analogy between uh, uh, his claim about modern corporate power, um, this quasi-private power that actually arises from uh, public legal decisions like corporate charters, uh, Landis compared these uh, gigantic corporations uh, to the stewards. <laughs> and he said that the problem with these gigantic corporations is they exercise um, a kind of unchecked power through law um, that um, is reminiscent of the stewards and that um, in order to uh, precisely to carry out the fundamental aim of uh, the American Revolution, which is uh, to create and protect popular sovereignty, the administrative state was necessary because the alternative was the world 
of private sovereigns exercising a kind of tyrannical power. So on that high level of generality, Landis saw the administrative state not as in opposition to uh, the throwing off of monarchy, but as a necessary concomitant to the throwing off of monarchy. It's a way under changed circumstances of completing and translating the purposes of the American Revolution. That's point one. Point two is um, we have to be very careful uh, when we discuss originalism not to accept the label at face value. I, I don't want to rehash the arguments of my book and the uh, very striking um, and enormous subsequent debate it, de debate it provoked. Uh, but I'll just say that in my view, the, the framers were themselves classical lawyers. They thought in classical legal categories um, rather than modern positivist categories. They weren't, they themselves weren't originalists, so that originalism has a self-defeating quality. If we think ourselves back into the legal cosmology of the framers, it's a classical legal cosmology, which uh, sees the law as partly uh, use uh, civile or positive law, it's partly natural law, it's partly use sensi, it's partly divine law. So the categories are the classical legal categories. Now let me get to the separation of powers in particular. The theory of Chevron, of course, is that it is uh, not only consistent with the separation of powers, but it's a, a corollary of the separation of powers. So when Congress creates a delegating instrument, um, it uh, gives uh, the president uh, and the board agencies authority um, to execute the laws. And that execution of the laws, so long as it stays within the constraints that we've discussed at some length, um, isn't a um, usurpation of legislative power. It's a carrying out of the office that the Constitution gives uh, to the president and then through the president to subordinate agencies. So that's why um, Justice Scalia uh, wrote in a case called City of Arlington that when agencies make rules or adjudicate, the theory of our law is that they are engaged in an exercise of executive power rather than some other kind of power. So that the opposition between Chevron on the one hand and the separation of powers on the other hand is a chimera. Now, one thing that one hears is that um, judges have to engage in quote-unquote de novo independent interpretation of statutes and that that's a requirement to the separation of powers. I somewhat despair when I hear this because as long ago as 1983, just before Chevron was decided, a legal scholar named Henry Monaghan in a, a article that should be better known today called Marbury in the Administrative State Pointed out um, the, I think, simple fallacy in this view. Um, Monaghan's point, and I'm going to uh, somewhat paraphrase it, is that it is a mistake. It's a conceptual error to contrast de novo interpretation with deference to agencies. The judicial role, of course, is to construe the statute to understand the scope and purposes and ends of the relevant delegation from Congress. We can call that 
de novo if we like. But then deference falls out of that uh, on exactly the classical premises I mentioned, because the judges uh, try to ascertain uh, whether the agency has faithfully and reasonably carried out the purpose that uh, Congress has entrusted to it. And doing that is precisely a way of respecting the independent judicial authority to say what the law is. And it's precisely a way of respecting the separation of powers rather than a contravention of the separation of powers. So one of the worst, I think, conceptual mistakes in this whole debate is to contrast de novo interpretation with deferential interpretation. De novo interpretation is what yields deference on on, uh, Monaghan's view. And I think that's very clearly the theory of Chevron. I want to pick up, pick that back up in a second. But first, I want to just ask you very open-endedly, what do you think of the major questions doctrine? Well, there's so much to say about this. I think first that people have misunderstood the roots of the major question doctrine. So why do we see it suddenly appear in the past two decades or so? Um, people see it as an opponent of Chevron, and there's a sense in which that's true. But ironically, um, I would suggest that the major questions doctrine and Chevron spring from exactly the same root cause. And the root cause is, imagine you're a judge on the D.C. Circuit, and to use uh, the example that I, I keep using, you have a statute before you that um Uh, delegates to an agency the power to regulate um, chemicals that uh, pose, quote, unreasonable risks of injury, unquote. You as a judge have every reason to think, and I think you, you are quite right in thinking this, that for you to engage in, quote, unquote, de novo interpretation of what counts as an unreasonable risk of chemical injury, will be a disastrous enterprise. Like nothing in your legal training, nothing in your uh, legal background um, equips you to decide what counts as an unreasonable risk of chemical injury. And Chevron and the Major Questions Doctrine are both in different ways responses to this. Chevron says, um, let the agency decide, subject to all the constraints of reasoned decision-making that we've discussed, Let the agency decide what counts as an unreasonable risk of injury. The major questions doctrine says, well, could we have a clearer statement from Congress about what counts as an unreasonable risk of injury? Both are ways for judges to avoid actually de novo interpretation of a statutory text that they think is in some fundamental way outside the bounds of their office and outside the bounds of their training. So Chevron and the major questions doctrine spring from the same root rather than being antagonistic. And that's one of the great ironies of this debate. The other um, thing I'd say about the major questions doctrine is that um, uh, it represents a uh, kind of fictional attribution of meta intention to Congress in exactly the same way Scalia said Chevron does. So um, Chevron rests on the attribution of intention to Congress that agencies can engage in determinatio of uh, or specification of incomplete 
um, or general statutory provisions. The major questions doctrine rests on an attribution of a general meta intent to Congress that when questions are of um, great economic, political significance, uh, that Congress would not want agencies to be able to do that. Um, so they have exactly the same methodological status and people who try to say that uh, Chevron is uh, in some way methodologically objectionable in a way that the major questions doctrine doesn't are, you know, I, I don't think are understanding the two um, approaches correctly. Which approach um, to me is a better attribution of meta intention to Congress? Well, clearly Chevron is. Um, the people have done work on this recently and there's work forthcoming, but there's no general reason to think that Congress only wants agencies to be able to de uh, decide um, under Chevron horizon kind of relatively unimportant or minor uh, policy questions. Um, indeed, um, there's good reason to think that the more important the policy question, the more likely it is that Congress, aware of its own limitations, aware of the limitations of its knowledge and foresight, aware of the possibility of changing circumstances, delegate more broadly agencies. So um, as, a, as a general meta canon of construction, I think the major questions doctrine simply um, has, no, has no basis in fact. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's uh, an ironic um, attempt to avoid um, de novo interpretation that um, doesn't have much to recommend it as a, as a king. The Supreme Court is going to hear a case next year, or next term, I should say, on um, on Chevron. I'm wondering what you think happens if if they overrule Chevron. Yes, yeah, so, so much to say here. One is, um, it is very ill-defined what overruling Chevron would even mean, uh, and that's for the following reason. Chevron contains this famous two-step text, uh, two-step test, but the fundamental Chevron principle of deference to reasonable agency interpretations is far older than Chevron itself. Ron Levin uh, traced it back as far as an opinion by Chief Justice Marshall in 1809, if I remember correctly, called Vowel, um, where uh, Chief Justice Marshall said that uh, in doubtful cases, we would uh, defer to a longstanding construction by the executive department. Um, and there's a kind of uh, grimly hilarious, uh, from the current standpoint, um, document in 1928. It's a lawyer's edition annotation um, that contains hundreds of such deference cases stretching back to the foundation of the Republic. By the way, one thing you will hear in uh, these debates is that all the deference cases of either the 19th century or at least before the enactment of the APA uh, were mandamus cases. Um, that's simply not true. So the vowel decision uh, that I mentioned from 1809-ish is not a mandamus decision. It's a direct action. Um, and um, there are a number of cases like that from the founding era 
onwards. So overruling Chevron is not a simple, well-defined idea. The question is, how much do you have to overrule? At a minimum, you'd have to overrule maybe a dozen cases before Chevron, stretching back to the famous Hearst decision in 1944, um, which um, said that uh, when agency interpretations have a reasonable basis in law, um, they are uh, controlling uh, because Congress is delegated to the agency um, as incident to its execution of the statute, the power to uh, interpret the statute. So first point is overruling Chevron is not a simple or well-defined idea. Second point is, and this is the force of the Monaghan logic that I mentioned earlier, um, is that it's perfectly possible to say what we do in Article 3 is de novo interpretation, and then recreate, if you like, Chevron deference as a corollary or consequence of de novo interpretation. So when people fall into this confusion and they think that de novo interpretation um, is contrary to deference, it raises the specter that the court may nominally overrule Chevron, but then recreate deference just in the guise of de novo interpretation of the scope and aims of the delegation. The third point I want to make is that even if Chevron were, in some sense, nominally overruled, I think that deference would continue in a in a more or less tacit form. I do not believe that um, D.C. Circuit judges are going to try to decide for themselves what counts as an unreasonable risk of chemical injury. I think that they will end up, uh, whether in... Uh, through the Monaghan logic or simply in a tacit, um, non-transparent form, they will end up deferring to uh, agencies about what that sort of thing means. So uh, I think that a lot of the debate over this case, Loper-Bright, um, proceeds on uh, false premises. I also think that when the Supreme Court actually comes down to it, they may get a bit nervous about overruling Chevron. We saw exactly this pattern with respect to the Kaiser decision that surprised many conservative legal scholars and many libertarian legal scholars because there was a great deal of hope in, in certain quarters that um, the uh, doctrine of our deference to agency interpretations of their own rules would be overruled. And then the court in a certain way flinched and you had a a plurality opinion with some funny concurrences that ended up uh, more or less um, reaffirming our deference, although emphasizing the constraints surrounding it. Why did the court flinch in Kaiser? I think it's because all the excitement about abstract theory gave way to the realization, the very practical realization that overruling our deference would put courts in the intolerable position of doing de novo interpretation of very complex uh, agency rules in, with respect to the sorts of um, problems that I've been mentioning all along. 
And it is not impossible to me to imagine a similar process happening with Loper-Bright. That is, the, the Loper-Bright case has a slightly non-standard, funny pack, fact pattern under a statute few people have ever heard of. But when the justices focus on the issue that the case presents, focus on the problem of interpreting de novo, you know, unreasonable risk of chemical injury, I think that it's very possible that they may um, decide that some form of deference has to be retained, uh, perhaps through the, through the Monaghan rationale. So this is always the, the stage at which everybody expects a dramatic overruling, but often when we get down to the actual concrete problem, uh, things don't, don't pan out as people expect. That's all very interesting and gives us a lot to think about heading into next term. So we'll be uh, we'll be looking looking at that case pretty hard. Uh, you've been very generous with your time. I'm wondering if you just have anything that you're working on that you'd like to tell the audience about that's coming out. Yeah. Um, well, uh, some of this discussion has been uh, based on a paper of mine uh, called "The Many and the Few" about. Uh, classical justifications for the administrative state that's available on SSRN. I think some of that work and uh, some uh, joint work I've done with um, Professor Connor Casey from Surrey, uh, we are thinking about expanding into a book. And the book will, um, it'll make a few fundamental points. One of them being that the administrative state is as old as Western law and um, is important ways of creation of uh, the Catholic Church uh, in particular. Um, and another point is that American legal conservatives in particular should understand that the administrative state can be purposed to uh, public regarding ends. Um, that is, there is absolutely no reason that we can't have um, uh, uh, agencies and other executive branch bodies promoting uh, things like uh, traditional families, promoting um, uh, other aspects of the natural law through um, executive branch activity, rulemaking and adjudication. So that um, there is a kind of, a kind of floating assumption out there um, among American legal conservatives that the administrative state is necessarily a hostile force. And uh, one one idea of this book would be to say that um, that's simply not not so. Great. That's awesome. And, and we'll look for those, those items. Uh, thank you so much for your time uh, and have a nice day. Okay. Thank you so much, Joseph.